I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 10th, 2011. We'll hear about how eating cholesterol can build muscle. And we'll talk with Larry Gold about the Gold Lab Symposium. This year's topic is the science of healthcare. Yep, this Friday and Saturday. Hope that all of you will come. It's going to be a good two days. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine reports a small risk of thigh bone fractures for patients taking bisphosphonates, which are popular drugs for preventing osteoporosis. While it may seem surprising that a drug designed to prevent broken bones can increase the risk of some bone fractures, the possibility of the chance of breaking bones is well known by the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. Last year, the Society published research that indicates that among 300 people who had an unusual form of thigh bone fracture, 94% had taken the drugs, most for more than five years. The Society says there were warning signs for these unusual fractures because more than half the patients with these fractures reported groin or thigh pain for weeks or months before fractures occurred. While the Society says that bisphosphonates do reduce fractures in the hip and spine, they urge doctors to educate their patients about the warning signs for these unusual thigh fractures, which include prolonged pelvic pain. As for why these drugs may occasionally cause fractures, bisphosphonates block substances that scrub out old brittle bone and pave the way for bone to be more resilient. So while bisphosphonates allow for more hard stuff to accumulate, they can increase the chance that the bones will be more brittle. If you were a pirate retrieving a chest full of treasure from the ocean floor, You'd be disappointed to discover that it was only the common mineral pyrite, or fool's gold. But to ocean-going bacteria and phytoplankton, pyrite is a priceless plunder. That's because pyrite contains iron, which is essential to all life, but can be hard to come by in the deep sea. Pyrite is emitted by hydrothermal vents in the deep ocean. Of course, we're not talking about fool's gold doubloons. These particles are tiny, about 1,000 times smaller than the diameter of human hair. Scientists had thought that the mineral simply settled to the ocean floor. But researchers from the University of Delaware and other institutions have shown that these tiny pyrite particles don't settle. Instead, they remain suspended in the water and are dispersed by currents throughout the ocean. The researchers say it's like giving the ocean a multivitamin. The iron is released slowly, providing an important nutritional supplement for tiny organisms like phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are the foundation of the ocean food chain and also play a role in regulating atmospheric levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide. The discovery could shed additional light on that process. The research is published in the current issue of Nature Geoscience. And tonight, you can mark your calendars for a story that goes like this. Yogi Berra goes in to pick up a pizza. The guy asks, Should I cut it in eight slices? Yogi says, Nah, I ain't hungry enough to eat eight slices. Better cut it in six. All right, so why is that funny? 
If you don't think it's funny, what's wrong with it? Or what's wrong with you? The science and philosophy of humor is a serious business, and you can learn more about it tonight at Denver's Café Scientifique when CU psychology professor Peter McGraw explains benign violation, which is his very serious theory of why some things that are surprising but don't strike a person as dangerous end up being funny. You can find out more at tonight's Denver Cafe Sci that takes place at the Wincoop Brewery starting at 6 p.m. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Ted Burnham. If you've been avoiding egg yolks because you're afraid they will raise your blood cholesterol levels, then maybe you should think again. That's according to new research from Steve Reichman, just published in the Journal of Gerontology. His research shows that eating plenty of cholesterol actually raises blood cholesterol levels less than eating a moderate amount of cholesterol. What's more, when you exercise, eating plenty of cholesterol helps improve muscle mass. And that's especially important in older people who tend to lose a lot of muscle mass. Here's Steve Reichman. We do see a consistent trend of muscle loss with aging. So by the time uh, you reach 60 or 70 years old, you may have lost 15 or 20 pounds of muscle. So that's a concern um, because we use that muscle to, uh, to function in our daily lives. To figure out how much diet affects muscle mass, Reichman took a group of older people, ages 60 through 69, and urged them to exercise on a special diet. Here's the diet. He gave them all the same amount of protein to eat, but then gave them varying amounts of dietary cholesterol in a sort of Goldilocks progression. Some people ate less cholesterol than the typical American, some people ate a medium amount, and some people ate more than the typical American does. All the while, they were exercising. The general thought has been that dietary cholesterol is bad for health, so maybe it would be bad for muscles too. Instead, the group that ate the most cholesterol had the best gains of muscle mass. This was a surprise, but in some ways, Reichman says, it was not a surprise, because cholesterol is an important building block of our body's cells. And to build muscle cells, maybe we do need cholesterol. Naturally, Reichman says, eating cholesterol concerns people who worry about heart attack risk. But Reichman says that actually there's very little correlation between heart disease and dietary cholesterol consumption. Except for this. The people who ate the average amount of cholesterol had the most cholesterol in their blood. Here's Steve Reichman. Dietary cholesterol doesn't have a big impact on blood cholesterol, nor does it have a big impact on development of disease, of heart disease. I was surprised by that because I think everybody thinks that it's, you know, dietary cholesterol, you've got to avoid it because it's going to help you with preventing heart disease. And if you look at the, at the data, it's not very clear. It's, and if it, there's an effect, it's small. And the other, the second striking thing that I found in the literature is that none of the studies accounted for exercise. So you have a big mix of people who are active, people who are sedentary, and that's what our recommendations are based on. And what our results show is that the uh, effect of exercise is really important in, in moderating and consuming this extra cholesterol if you've got extra cholesterol in your diet. Not just consuming, but it's necessary for the for the response. So specifically in our data, in our exercising people, we found no effect 
at all of dietary cholesterol on blood cholesterol. None. There was no effect at all. And if we were going to eke out small trends out of it, the middle of the road dietary cholesterol levels may have had a small effect where if you restrict cholesterol a lot, you might you might have a minor reduction. If you had a lot of cholesterol, it also seemed like you had a small reduction. Blood cholesterol level, that's right. And then the middle level, the and our middle level is, is the typical American diet of about 400 milligrams a day. Those look like they had a small increase in blood cholesterol. The moderate levels um, may have increased blood cholesterol because your body produces cholesterol and and then you have your dietary cholesterol. So if you have this moderate level, you don't shut down your body's production of cholesterol. When you're at the high levels, you your body's saying, hey, we got plenty of cholesterol, no problem. Shut down your body's production of cholesterol because we don't we have plenty. It's there's not a deficiency. So it seems paradoxical, but it actually makes sense. Researcher Steve Reichman says that now that they have the data, it also makes sense that eating a lot of cholesterol when you're exercising can improve the building of body protein. So he's being a vocal fan of high-cholesterol foods, such as eggs. And he means the whole egg, including the high-cholesterol yolk. People that I've experienced, you know, I've had kids and, and interact with other families, and they, they want to do the best thing they can for their kids. And so they, like, restrict eggs for kids. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, eggs are the best nutrient, the best protein you can get, and then it has all this other stuff that's so important for growth, development, response to exercise. I tell I tell parents, you got to, eggs are awesome. I mean, cheap and just so healthy. That's, you know, that's just my opinion. Reichman's new study appears in the Journal of Gerontology. You're tuned to KGNU's science show, How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. There's still time to make a reservation in order to attend the Gold Lab Symposium this Friday and Saturday, which is at CU Boulder. The two-day event is called Time, the Dalliance with Improved Healthcare. It will give you an opportunity to hear from cutting-edge researchers, leading scientists, and healthcare experts as they discuss progress and issues in personalized medicine. To find out more, with us now is Larry Gold, the founder of the Gold Lab Symposium. And Larry, let's start by, who are you? <laughs> I used to be a professor at CU. I'm still a professor some of the time. And um, I run a biotech company in Boulder called Somalogic. And um, we decided that this symposium, not we at Somalogic, but we in my university life, that it was a good idea to try to grapple with healthcare stuff in a kind of comprehensive way, and that's what we're doing. Well, why do you want more people to think about time and science and how both of these things affect healthcare? <laughs> I, I wish we hadn't called it time, but, but it, it makes some sense. The the I'm in a hurry. I'm almost seventy. 
And it would be a good idea if we didn't waste time fixing what needs fixing. And so um, last year we were very optimistic. We showed people a lot of new technology that you would have said was personalized medicine that the people at Johns Hopkins now call precision medicine, I think a better a better phrase. Um, and this year it will be about half and half uh, science and half the infrastructure things that one has to couple to science to make medicine better. Well, you know, when I think about healthcare and time, I think about how many interventions only make a difference if you do them at the right time. And the time of the intervention makes a difference. And that we only have a limited amount of time on the face of the earth to be as healthy as possible and to live as long as possible. And now's the time to look at a way to make our healthcare system affordable so that we can have the time to make people healthier. So time to me adds in in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. How does science tie in with the healthcare system? Imperfectly, of course. The, the, Imperfectly, you say. Yes. Last year at the symposium, um, the CEO of of uh, whichever company it was uh, gave a, a wonderful description of the 17 years between a discovery that should help healthcare and its implementation in the healthcare system. 17 years is a long time. And so clearly you want to do better than that. But some of the barriers to improved healthcare are not just about science. The the infrastructure and the, the whole system needs to be looked at. Well, it's paradoxical then because we are a science show, and yet you as a scientist are saying that not only is there the 17-year time lag between a new technology and its acceptance or it's starting to be looked at in the healthcare world, but that science doesn't get to go very far if the healthcare system isn't ready for it? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. I have nothing to say except you're right, as usual. Well, let's look at some of the topics that are going to be at the symposium this year. What are some of the ones that you're highlighting for being especially good for talking about how healthcare intersects with science? Yeah, the... Uh so there's, again, this year, 18 speakers, um, as there were last year. And last year, probably it was 15 techies and five systems type people. This year, it's 10 techies and eight. And next year, it'll be about half and half. And that's the way it probably will equilibrate. And what what I've tried to do is not, um, we've tried to ask, we have asked the scientist types to speak English. We did that last year, uh, I think successfully, um, I think. And next, you want to say something? Well, yes, because I remember last year that afterward, one of the uh, people listening said that he had been at some Washington bureaucratic political discussions about these same issues with some of the speakers that you had had there at the Gold Lab Symposium. And he said, whoa, at this symposium that you're doing, they kick loose. They, 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 they relax and they start to actually speak in what they're really thinking. It was very different in terms of how they were speaking bureaucratically and technically mm-hmm. and how they spoke to this audience of mm-hmm. people. Yeah, well, that was the whole idea. I mean, the, the idea, of course, is that if we take it seriously, there are solutions. 
but you can't get there, in, in your words, bureaucratically. You have to get there by thinking. So last year we had a lot of thinking going on, um, and, the, and the audience was great. I, I can say a thing. Let me say one more thing. I don't know if you recall, last year Pat Furlong uh, gave a, a stunning talk about muscular dystrophy. And this year we invited last year's speakers to come back uh, and join in the conversation again. And the four moderators for the four sessions this year are speakers from last year. And Pat is going to be a moderator for a session on rare and uh, neg or neglected diseases like uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which her two sons died of. And you recall there was a an interchange between Pat and Dick Lamb, uh, former Governor Lamb, that was so interesting. And, and both what they had to say was important, both both of them. And and yet you didn't want it to end with that discussion. You wanted to figure out how we as this wealthy country could do a better job at rare and neglected diseases. And this year we have a whole session on that because we were so struck by that interchange that so so the whole idea is that this is supposed to build over time to um, to be a dialogue. You know, I recall that discussion that Pat Furlong had where she said that she watched her two boys dying of this <laughs> rare disease where every day through the time that they died as teens, it was, what else can we do to help them live longer? What she would get from most of the research community is, as a rare disease, there's not enough profit to be able to try to address this rare disease, and so we really can't touch it. What you've been looking for in this conference is ways to make it more economical to address these things. Dick, uh, yeah. Dick Lamb was saying that there's only a certain amount of medical money, and if we try to go after rare diseases, what happens to people who have other diseases? Right. Now, do you want to share the fact that you are contributing on a pro bono basis with your company to helping explore the rare disease that Pat Furlong's children died of? Well, we are actually helping with that, and, and I, pro bono is not a word I use. I mean, everything we do is pro bono. We have no revenues, so that's a, a funny way of thinking about it. The, we are working with Pat's organization to see if we can help. That, that that's true because when you, I mean, you know, she was just written up in in the New Yorker, a whole big profile of her about a month ago. When you read it, if you read that article, you would do anything to help her. Right. And the way that she has described to me that you're helping her is that there are boys with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy who have sent blood samples to your lab, and you have a special lab where you can count hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe more proteins that the body makes at once to see what is there so that people can look at this huge number of proteins and look for patterns that might explain what makes some kids healthier and what makes them not with this rare condition. That's all exactly right. The um, the economics of of going after a disease that has a small smaller number of of uh, people with that disease is complicated because the cost of clinical trials is more or less independent of the frequency of disease in the population. So you spend the same amount of money going after a a smaller disease, a, le a less major disease than you do a, a minor, a rarer disease. And I think at this session that, that uh, we're going to have, there will be a notion of something that I love very much, which is called drug repurposing in, in the industry. The idea that 
there will be drugs that already exist for, call it heart disease or cancer, that have some likelihood for some people of helping them with a disease for which the drug was not developed, and we think we can help find those things. Now, you know, you are here at an alternative radio station where drugs are not the only thing that we look at, even though they're a major focus of medicine. Um, Can these applications also be used for things like diet? We heard about a study just now that says that a great way to build bones, excuse me, not bones, but muscle, is not through drugs, but by adding cholesterol. Can, can you look at things like that? Sure. I would be the strongest person in the world since I love eggs and always eat the yolks. Um, the, you know, that was both of the things that were in the thing before us, both the bisphosphonate and the cholesterol are kind of nutrition things and next, you know, important things. And human nutrition is very poorly understood. And next year, our plan is to make the entire symposium about nutrition, wellness, medicine, obesity, diabetes. That's the plan for next year. Well, this this Gold Lab Symposium is kind of like a book, a novel unfolding, where one year it was about the science cutting edge, and this year it's about how policy and science intersect. And next year it will be more about nutrition. So if people want to keep up with this, this week is the time to go. And it's going to be at Munziger Auditorium. Right. And it is a huge venue. And uh, we at KGNU are going to help you recording so that there'll be a way for people to look at the talks afterward. Um, But if people want to go... It's pretty easy, isn't it? All you have to do is register, and how do you do that? I have those. I have that right here. There's a, we, we worked with the Colorado Bioscience Association, and so they have a website, which is www.cobioscience.com, cobioscience.com. And if you go there, there's a place for the Gold Lab Symposium, and you can register. And at this point, like when we did this last year, we have, there's 50 or so seats left of the 400 people that can sit down. And so we expect it to be full again. And the beautiful thing about this, from, from my perspective, is it's meant for everybody. It's not meant just for graduate students and postdocs and scientists, but, you know, real people also. And it's free. Lunches are provided. The only thing you have to pay is $8 to park on campus. Well, there you go. And if you find a parking space off of campus, it's totally free. Totally so, free. Well, thank you for joining us. Larry Gold is the founder of the Gold Lab Symposium. The symposium takes place this Friday and Saturday at CU Boulder. It is free. As we said, you do need to make a reservation. You can also find out more by doing a Google for Gold Lab Symposium 2011. I'm Shelley Schlender. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music by the Paul Blay Trio. And speaking of theme music, we're having a contest to find a new science show theme. If you or someone you know is a musician in the Boulder, Denver area, we would love to have your submission. Check out the details at our website, howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our show are also available there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Joel Parker. Parker.